This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2016. Thanks for joining me. What's missing from the presidential vetting process, especially on the GOP side, but even on the uh, the Democrat side? What question has not been asked? You know, we're hearing a lot of silliness uh, coming out of these debates. You've heard them. You've watched them. And there's some important things that I think we need to know from these candidates and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Also, I'm going to replay my interview. I filled in for Glenn Beck this week on his program, the Glenn Beck program. And I had an interview discussion with presidential candidate, Senator Ted Cruz. And I'm going to replay that for those of you that missed it. Uh, you need to hear it again anyway. Maybe you'll find some things in there that you didn't catch the first time. But here's where I want to start. The AP story. It is the... A list of their top 10 news stories of 2015. You want to talk about media bias? Listen to this. Here are their top 10 stories. And you know what? A lot of news media outlets put these out. You know, our top 10 news stories, top news story of the year, person of the year. And they may differ a little bit, but there's some common themes that you'll hear if you look at everybody's top 10 and they may just be in different rankings, and, and maybe one or two that they wouldn't have in there versus another list may have uh, one or two in there that someone else didn't. But mainly, the top news stories we're talking about now, you're going to find some commonality. So here's the AP's list of top 10 for 2015. Number one, Islamic State, a multinational coalition intensified ground and airstrikes against Islamic State militants in Iraq and Syria, including expanded roles for Western European countries worried about Islamic State-backed terrorism, number one. Number two, gay marriage. Fifteen years after Vermont pioneered civil unions for same-sex couples, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in June enabling them to marry in all 50 states. Number three, the Paris attacks. The first attack came just a week into the new year. Two brothers who call themselves members of Al-Qaeda birds into the offices of the satiric newspaper Charlie Hebdo and later attacked the Jewish market, gunning down 17 people in all. Number four, mass shootings. Throughout the year, mass shootings brought grief to communities across the U.S. and deepened frustration over the failure to curtail them. It's because they were politicized. Number five, black deaths and encounters with police. In Baltimore, riots broke out after the death of Freddie Gray, a black man loaded into a van by police officers. You know what the number one story was last year? Let me pause here for a bit. A year ago, the top story in AP poll, in the AP's poll, was the police killing of unarmed blacks in Ferguson, Missouri, and elsewhere. That was the number one story. It's number five this year. But guess who else was unarmed when they were killed? Victims of black-on-black homicide. They were also killed uh, while being unarmed. 
But we don't hear about that. It's always about the police. Back to the uh, list here. Number six, terrorism worries. Fears about terrorism in the U.S. surged after a married couple in California, described by investigators as radicalized Muslim, carried out the attack in San Bernardino that killed 14 people. Number seven, U.S. election campaign. A large and ver- ver- a varied field of Republicans launched bids for, for, bid for the presidency with billionaire Donald Trump, moving out to an early lead in the polls and remaining there despite a series of polarizing statements. Number eight, climate change. Negotiators from nearly 200 countries reached reached a first-of-its-kind agreement in Paris on curbing greenhouse gas emissions. Number nine, the Charleston church shooting. A Bible study session at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, suddenly turned into carnage when a white gunman opened fire, killing nine blacks, including a pastor. You know, there were some high-profile homicides uh, involving black perpetrators and they didn't make the top 10 and we don't hear about that. How about that goof that killed that on live air, that uh, reporter and uh, that cameraman, I can't remember what it was, Virginia, I think it was. Uh, We didn't hear about that as well as uh, some others. And number 10, Europe's migrant crisis, fleeing war and hardship, more than 1 million migrants and refugees flooded into Europe during the year, overwhelming national border guards and reception facilities. What story is missing from that top 10? The hint is media bias. I think it should be in the top three, but it should be in everybody's top 10. But we're talking about the liberal mainstream media. This is the Associated Press, remember. What story is missing? How about Planned Parenthood's harvesting of baby parts, killing babies, harvesting their baby parts, and auctioning them off to the highest bidder? Where was that story in AP's top 10? It didn't even make number 10. If the AP was being honest, it should have been in their top five if they were being objective maybe top three I mean that story dominated the news media when it broke the videos were graphic the recordings woman talking about she needed a Ferrari or some kind of sports car It was horrific. How could that story be neglected by the AP or any news media in their top 10 stories of 2015? I mean, my gosh, it led to congressional hearings, for heaven's sakes. How many news stories led to congressional hearings? The bias of the media. Specifically what that is. It's exactly what that is. I want to change gears here and I want to talk about another story. Uh, This comes from, if I remember this correctly, David Horowitz and the uh, Freedom Center's website. No, I'm sorry. This comes from The Hill. TheHill.com. Stories entitled RNC Chairman Gears Up for Tough Battle to Hold On to the Senate. 
Republican National Committee Chairman Reince Priebus conceded it will be tough for his party to keep its majority in the Senate in the 2016 elections, but voiced confidence the GOP would maintain control of both chambers of Congress. And this is big stuff. The numbers are not in their favor. I think 24 Senate seats are up for election in 2016, and the DNC only has to try to hold on to 10. They only have 10 up for election, so the numbers aren't in their favor. But here's something to think about. Will we really notice if the Democrats regain control of the Senate after that craptacular omnibus spending package, $1.1 trillion in spending? That included funding, continued funding for Planned Parenthood. That included continued funding of sanctuary cities. It continues funding for Obama's illegal immigration program. So I, I, when I read this, you know, I asked myself, what would we notice? But here is one important thing. And here's what's missing from this vetting process in the presidential election. There are going to be at least three United States Supreme Court seats that open up. Probably Ginsburg, you know, maybe Scalia, and who knows what Kennedy's going to do. So the next president's going to have maybe three seats to fill on the high court. That is why the Republicans have to control, keep control of the United States Senate, just in case they don't win the White House. But even if they do, they can keep that court slanted toward a conservative bent. We'll be right back. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. This podcast brought to you by My Patriot Supply. Did you miss the chance to get a 72-hour emergency food supply with free shipping for just 10 bucks? What's wrong with you? Don't worry. Call 888-411-7440 right now. They have a few left, and they're selling out fast. 888-411-7440. What are you waiting for? A disaster? Do it right now. 888-411-7440. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. Let's take a look and see what the Black Lives Matter movement is up to. That rebellion. That's what it is. It's not peaceful protests. I'll give you some uh, analysis as to why. But their latest is to disrupt commercial activity in the city of Chicago on the Magnificent Mile, blocking entrances to stores, tying up traffic, and also at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, supposedly the largest mall in the continental United States. It's their latest tactic. You know, as I've indicated, this is a political construct. This has nothing to do with black lives mattering. If it did, we would have seen them front and center during the Planned Parenthood exposure. We we all know that Planned Parenthood aborts, kills more black fetuses than any other race. They were conspicuously absent from that story. They should be protesting in the city of Baltimore right now. Baltimore City reached a new high for homicides. Actually, it's now the second highest in its history. Over 350 people murdered 
the overwhelming majority, 80-90% are black and were killed by other blacks in violence. They haven't reached the all-time high yet, but the all-time high came uh, with a smaller population. So per capita, per 100,000, this would go down as the uh, highest year for the number of homicides in the city of Baltimore. That's what they should be protesting. Better schools for black kids instead of being shackled to these failing K-12 public school systems that are segregated. Mainly black kids going to these urban centers, uh, these schools in these urban centers, underperforming schools. The kids can't read or write at grade level, can't add a three-digit number to a two-digit number and come up with the right answer. These are nothing more than laboratories for liberal indoctrination about slavery and discrimination. That's what they should be protesting. But no, they're going to disrupt people who had nothing to do with their claim about police killing of black youths, black young men, mainly black young men who are engaged in criminal behavior and more times than not, felonious criminal behavior that necessitated police intervention. They won't tell you about that. So they took over the Magnificent Mile over the Christmas holiday several weekends. You know, you have people coming in from out of town. It's a tradition to go down to the Magnificent Mile, Michigan Avenue, and shop and engage in Christmas activity. Those store owners, those business owners down there had nothing to do with that police killing in Chicago, that ugly one that Rahm Emanuel swept under the rug, kept hidden from the voters so he could get through an election. And by the way, during the Christmas week when the uh, uh, huge demonstration was going on in the Magnificent Mile, Mayor Rahm Emanuel's vacationing with his family in Cuba. Well, isn't that special? The optics of that are horrible. Rahm Emanuel doesn't care. He got through his election last spring. He's got three and a half years to try to quell this and get it under control. So he goes on with his life, his life, and the heck with the business owners who count on the Christmas shopping season to balance their books. And the heck with the people who spent a weekend in Chicago or who didn't go because of what was going on after a Thanksgiving down there, who canceled their plans. And so the objective of this Black Lies Matter movement was to disrupt commercial trade. Look, there's a difference between protest and rebellion. We all know what protest is. Peaceful protest. You can look at many situations, but if you look back at the civil rights marches of the 1960s, led by Dr. Martin Luther King and others. Those were peaceful protests. They got their permits. They marched. They weren't making unreasonable demands. We're talking about equality. 
they were talking about things like equal justice under law. This Black Lives Matter movement, they got justice in Ferguson, Missouri. A grand jury correctly ruled that Darren Wilson reasonably used deadly force to save his own life. A grand jury did that. That's justice. Due process. Eric Garner got due process. In Baltimore, well, now with this recent hung jury, I think justice was served. I think it would be an injustice for Marilyn Mosby to retry that officer, and she should release the charges on the other five individuals as well. Because no crime was committed. A man ended up dead, but that doesn't mean it was a result of a criminal act. So then they take over the Mall of America. Again, retailers. Small businesses who have to employ people had to shut down. They're intruding. This Black Lies, L-I-E-S, this Black Lies Matter movement is intruding on other people's right to engage in commercial activity, exchange of goods and services for money. Those people in Minneapolis had nothing to do with anything that the Black Lives Matter movement is whining about. Yes, whining. They are whiners. And I'm disappointed at the police action. They are basically walking on eggshells. And they're kind of letting this this, this movement push them around. They tried to disperse the the group in um, uh, Chicago. They tied up traffic. People have a right to use these public roadways for travel between point A and point B. They have a right to that public space. And when this group comes along, Black Lives Matter, and disrupts that, arrests should be made. The rights of the Black Lives Matter movement do not supersede anybody else's rights. What would be legitimate is if these idiots went to Chicago City Hall and marched outside on the sidewalk or on the grass around City Hall. That's who they're upset with. Rahm Emanuel. I wouldn't have a problem if they went to Rahm Emanuel's neighborhood and protested in front of his house. I think there are some ethical issues with that, you know, around a person's home. But if their displeasure is with Rahm Emanuel, one of their demands is that Rahm Emanuel resign, and I think he should, then put the pressure on Rahm Emanuel. He was in Cuba vacationing. Show up at City Hall, fill the chambers during the hearings, during the council hearings, and be heard there. Why do you want to... I know why they want to, because these are a bunch of selfish clowns is what it is. Self-serving, self-centered. But to take this out on the commercial establishment and have the police not do what they can to protect the rights of the business owners and the shoppers in these private spaces. By the way, this is private property, not on the public sidewalk, but inside the Mall of America. And finally, the Mall of America went and got a restraining order. But the judge didn't go far enough. He only restrained the the group organizers from showing up at the mall, but said the rest could show up. What sense did that make? 
that's private property. And the Mall of America has an interest in protecting the business owners. And their government let them down, just like they are in the city of Chicago. So we'll see what goes on now that the holiday season's over. We'll see what their, uh, the Black Lives Matter, we'll see what their next antics are. David Clark. The People's Sheriff. On the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. I can't even tell you. I was, I was, uh, I even did an interview for a, for a show over there that was taped, and they did not run it. And I think it was because I was so strident in my saying that Chattanooga was obviously terrorism, and anybody who claims to be a counterterrorism expert and says otherwise is either trying to curry favor with the administration and the Democrats and the left, or isn't a very good expert. Buck Sexton, weekdays noon to three p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. During Christmas week, I was handed the keys to the Ferrari, so to speak, when Glenn Beck trusted me to host his uh, daily radio program, the Glenn Beck program, on the Blaze Radio Network. What a tremendous opportunity that was, and it, it, it takes a lot of trust. You know, Glenn Beck is a brand, and he's built an empire, so to speak, and my objective in being handed those keys was to protect the brand, but it's a lot of work. And, you know, I do a little bit of radio and I understand how much work goes into it. And I appreciate what these folks do that have these programs. And you have to put your own show together. All right. They'll help you with the technical stuff and they'll help you with some of the things, but you have to line up your own guests and uh, really put your, 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 your program together. And I was able to have, a number of people as uh, call-in guests. I had uh, David French from the National Review. I had Monica Crowley from the Washington Times, noted columnist, uh, guest, frequent guest on uh, Fox News Channel on several of those programs. Um, and then I had Chris Cox, the executive director of the National Rifle Association's Institute for Legislative Action. The reason I was able to get those individuals because I had uh, established those relationships uh, those relationships, I should say, as time has gone by. and So I have easy access inside their firewalls. And they do have firewalls walls around them, and they should. I have them around me as well. Uh, you have to. You, know, you can't have hundreds of thousands or even tens of thousands or even thousands of people calling and wanting to talk to you it's just because it's just not possible. But uh, one of the things I've also done is I've established some relationships with some of the presidential candidates, Donald Trump campaign, for example, Scott Walker when he was a candidate, and uh, Carly Fiorina established a relationship with her, appeared on a panel with her at CPAC last year, and also Senator Ted Cruz. I had lunch with Senator Ted Cruz several weeks ago, a private lunch, about 10 or 12 of us, and I got to know him. Uh, he and I sat and we talked at length. I got to get inside the man. So anyway, I, I got uh, to him and, and his people returned the call and said, sure, we'd, we'd love to uh, uh, have the senator on with you. And he appeared with me, called into the Glenn Beck program. And I want to replay that for some of you that uh, may have missed it. We have on the line with us this morning, Senator Ted Cruz, running for president of the United States in the GOP field. And I invited him on today to talk to him about a few things. 
that are uh, in the news. Uh, Senator, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me. Sheriff, good morning. Good to be with you. Hope you're doing well and, and having a, a great Christmas week. Likewise, and, and, and back to you. Let's get right into it. This omnibus bill that was uh, passed by the House, I call it this craptacular bill. Conservatives <laughs> are feeling let down once again. You know about that. Uh, do, do we have a point? Absolutely. This, this bill is a complete and total betrayal. Uh, Republican leadership in the dark of night passed a 2,000-page, trillion-dollar omnibus bill. It, it funds all of President Obama's liberal agenda. It funds 100% of Obamacare. It funds executive amnesty. It funds Planned Parenthood. It funds this catastrophic Iranian nuclear deal. It funds President Obama's foolish plan to bring Syrian refugees to this country when the FBI director has told us they cannot vet them to determine whether or not they are ISIS terrorists. And and what we saw was Republican leadership simply capitulating, joining forces with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and, and betraying the men and women who elected them. It was an absolute disgrace. And Barack Obama, who, by the way, in an interview on yeah. NPR, said uh, that most of his agenda was funded by this omnibus bill, and he was uh, happy with that, that he could proceed to carry out the rest of his agenda in the few days or the months that he has remaining. Uh, it funds Planned Parenthood. It funds sanctuary cities, things like that. Like you said, 2,000 pages, all this stuff is buried inside. That's how sausage is made in Washington, D.C., this 11th-hour backroom deals. The clock is ticking, and then we're told – Afterwards, well, this is all we could get. We have to compromise. We don't have all the power. They don't know how to, um, you know, play strategy uh, with the power that they have. I always say you don't. You you go to war with the horses you have, not with the horses you don't have. But the uh, GOP leadership doesn't seem to get that. Let me switch to uh, national security. What can Americans expect with Ted Cruz as commander in chief? The number one obligation of a commander in chief is to keep this country safe. I think in the wake of Paris and San Bernardino, a seriousness, a gravity has focused on, on this election because people understand there's nothing more important the president should be doing. And sadly, we have a president, Barack Obama, who is unwilling and unable to do that job. Indeed, following the San Bernardino attack, he did a national TV conference where he continues to refuse to even utter the words radical Islamic terrorism, much less design or try to implement a coherent plan to defeat it. And Hillary Clinton is every bit as bad. If I'm elected president, we will have a commander-in-chief who makes clear to the world we will defeat radical Islamic terrorism. We will not weaken, we will not degrade, but we will utterly and completely destroy ISIS so that every militant anywhere on the face of the earth will understand if they go and join ISIS, if they wage jihad against the United States of America. They're signing their death warrant. Senator, what can we, what can you share with us, the voters, we the people, get this thing back toward self-rule, but what can you share with us about uh, your campaign for president moving, moving forward? Well, I'll tell you, we're on the last day of what's been a seven-day, 12-city tour through the, the Super Tuesday states, the March 1st, the, the so-called SEC primary. Uh, we started in Nevada, we went to Minnesota, then we went to Virginia, we had two stops in Georgia, we had two stops in Alabama, 
Uh, we had two stops in Tennessee. We were in Arkansas, and we've got two stops today in Oklahoma. And, and, and everywhere we're going, the energy, the enthusiasm, the passion we're seeing is extraordinary. I, I, I'll tell you, David, what we're seeing is we're seeing conservatives uniting behind this campaign. And, and as you know, that was our objective from day one when we launched the campaign, was if, if conservatives unite, we win. What, what the Washington establishment wants is they want conservatives fractured and divided. They want a chunk of conservatives over here, a chunk of evangelicals over there, a chunk of libertarians over there, a chunk of Tea Party folks over there. That's how, when we're divided, the moderate establishment candidate runs up the middle with 23% of the vote, steals the nomination, and then goes on to lose the general, as we keep doing over and over and over again when millions of conservatives stay home. And what I am so encouraged by is that we are seeing conservatives unite mm-hmm. powerfully in the early primary states in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, but also all across the country. Conservatives are coming together. They're looking for a consistent conservative, someone you can trust to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, to stand with the people, to stand for freedom and stand for the Constitution. And that's tremendously encouraging. I believe we are on the cusp of turning our country around. You know what I've been saying to people? Uh, you know, that question that's asked, what will you do on your first day uh, in office? And I'm saying that the next president of the United States, uh, I think on the first day, on Inauguration Day, has to deliver a Gettysburg Address-type speech to try to make this nation heal. We're divided. We're on yeah, fire. Yeah. Um, the people are pitted against one another. We're looking for a smaller reach from Washington. We need, I believe anyway, that uh, Washington needs to be deconstructed and uh, rebuilt with self-rule, more rights for the states. And I think that uh, that you're that guy. Senator, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. Good luck on the uh, campaign trail throughout the rest of the uh, time, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. All right, so, so just for, so we're clear now, too, the, the apps of the week now sometimes cost 30 bucks a month. No, the app is free. The service that the app provides has a cost. Are you a politician? What do you mean? Are you Paul Ryan? The, the app I'm telling you, the app is fun. Who are you, you Lindsey Graham? Who are you, Fancy Hands? Hey, what does the app do then aside from... Hands? The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. In the final segment here, we're going to talk about an update. Uh, a new study came out from the Heritage Foundation. And, you know, we're hearing a lot about this mass prison release. President Obama and the left are on this, uh, I think, this maniacal campaign to release longtime career criminals, violent criminals, back into our communities our communities are unprepared uh, for this influx of prisoners, just like the country's unprepared for this influx of refugees. But the left and Obama are uh, going full bore. And uh, I've often said about this misguided policy, show me the data or research to suggest that what you're doing is wise. And, of course, the left just says, oh, this is um, 
based on uh, best practices and model programs and everything's working. They just say that nobody tests as to whether or not this stuff is actually working. Nobody challenges it. Uh, and I say nobody, basically, I'm talking about the um, liberal mainstream media who, is, who supports this uh, inane idea and you know, the Republicans and Congress anywhere being hoodwinked on this. Many of these are on board with this. This is a Trojan horse, and they're not peeling back the layers or drilling down into what the left is peddling on this uh, nonsense to check for its uh, effectiveness. So anyway, I came across a uh, study. It's by David Mulhausen, um, Ph.D., and I'm just going to read excerpts of it from it, and then I'll have some uh, commentary when I'm done with it. It goes like this. To date, we do not know enough about what works in helping former inmates safely and successfully reintegrate into society. In fact, the scientifically rigorous evaluations of prisoner reentry programs that use random assignment, the gold standard of evaluation designs, have found at best mixed evidence of success. This conclusion is particularly relevant for employment-based reentry programs. A large-scale, multi-site experimental evaluation of the federal government's reintegration of ex-offenders, the uh, REXO program, an employment-based intervention, found the program to be ineffective. This conclusion has significant implications for congressional consideration of the version of the Second Chance Reauthorization Act, Senate Bill 1513 and House Bill 3406. In 2014, the Justice Department's Bureau of Justice Statistics issued a study on the recidivism rate of former a prisoner released from 30 states in 2005. The BJS found that 67.8% of released prisoners were arrested for a new crime within three years. The recidivism rate for the five-year period was 76.6%. It's bad news should come as no surprise. A 2002 BJS report found similar trends. Since the 90s, the Justice Department has poured significant funding resources into prisoner reentry programs. To date, however, we do not know enough about what works in helping former inmates safely and successfully reintegrate into society. In addition, policymakers need to ensure that programs are evaluated with regard to their impact on the primary purpose for which they were established. When assessing the impact of prisoner reentry programs, the most important outcome measure is recidivism, and that's the tendency to recreate, uh, repeat criminal behavior. Some have questioned the emphasis on recidivism as a measure of, measure of effectiveness compared with other measures that assess adjustment or reintegration of former prisoners into society. While intermediate measures such as finding employment and housing may be important, these outcomes are not the ultimate goal of reentry programs. If former prisoners continue to commit crimes after going through reentry programs, then the programs cannot be judged effective. For this reason, policymakers should place primary importance on measures of recidivism when judging the effectiveness of pre-prisoner reentry programs. There is considerable debate over the effectiveness of corrections and reentry programs. Some have concluded that several types of programs are effective, while others have cast doubt on the ability of these programs to reduce recidivism. Prisoner reentry programs operated by secular faith-based organizations offer a wide range of services that potentially could address recidivism. However, 
There are not enough scientifically rigorous evaluations of secular or faith-based prisoner reentry programs to conclude that these programs are effective. This review of the prisoner reentry literature is thus limited to the evaluations that use random assignment. Many advocates of social programs have adopted the language of the evidence-based policy movement. Under the evidence-based policy movement, programs found to be effective using rigorous scientific methods are deemed effective or evidence-based and held up as model programs to be replicated. The assumption is that the same successful impact found at a particular setting can be replicated in other settings or on a national scale. This faulty reasoning is based on the single instance fallacy. This fallacy occurs when a person believes that a small-scale social program that appears to work in one instance will yield the same results when replicated elsewhere. Compounding the effects of this fallacy, we often do not truly know why an apparently effective program worked in the first place. So how can we replicate it? The experimental evaluations discussed in this review offer mixed, at best, evidence of success. This conclusion is particularly relevant for employment-based reentry programs. A previously scholar review of the random assignment evaluations of employment-focused reentry programs concluded that these programs do not reduce recidivism. Developing a better understanding of how former prisoners desist from crime has important ramifications for advocates of prisoner reentry programs and victims of crime. Victims are often left out of this. Back to this story or study. The results of scientifically rigorous evaluations, especially the reintegration of ex-offenders evaluation, raise serious doubts about the overall effectiveness of federal involvement in subsidizing state and local prisoner reentry programs and congressional attempts to pass versions of the Second Chance Reauthorization Act. Criminologist Ray Paternoster and his colleagues are positing a similar theory that the process of Changing an offender's identity from a criminal to a law-abiding citizen is a complex process that needs to proceed finding legitimate employment. For instance, former prisoners need to realize that criminal offending is more costly than beneficial. Once the realization occurs, the individual can make a more pro-social identity that eschews quick and easy money such as theft and drug dealing for more conventional employment. And it goes on uh, to say, uh, if the perspective of Pastor Nostra and his colleagues is a more accurate explanation of the process of giving up on crime, helping release prisoners find employment before they are psychologically ready to give up criminal behavior may be unproductive. This measure that prisoner reentry efforts that rely mainly on job training and subsidized jobs are not likely to succeed beyond a few small-scale Examples Again, this is David Mulhausen, Ph.D., a research fellow uh, for empirical policy analysis in the Center for Data Analysis of the Institute of Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Now, what have I been saying? Changing human behavior is very difficult. Trying to alter it, modify it, and it has to come from within first. The individual has to realize, I need to change my life if things are going to improve. The left continues to peddle this lie that just giving somebody a job or uh, giving them job training is going to alter a criminal's behavior. It's simply not 
true, at least not to scale. This is the stuff that Congress needs to know. By the way, I'm going to forward this to this these uh, the Senate and House committees that are leading the charge on this thing because they're not getting this information. They're being blind to it, if nothing else. Look, we're out of time for this uh, program. I appreciate you being with me. Again, Happy New Year and a great 2016 to you. The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Find more on demand at theblaze.com slash radio.